by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, thank you, Laura. Pray with me. Hmm. Dear Lord, uh, we just thank you for gathering here and for the word that uh, Laurel read to us. We pray for Pastor Josh and the message that he will bring and ask that you would just uh, anoint his words and pray that that the living word would just come alive for us today. Thank you, Lord, for your presence and for the way in which because of your son that we can uh, have joy even in the midst of sadness. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Laura. Well, behind every great person or at least most, I would maybe say every, I don't think every is an exaggeration. Behind every great person is usually an equally great person somewhere in the shadows. When you hear an amazing story of triumph or of overcoming, of courage or wisdom, very often what you'll find is somewhere in the background or in their life is another very amazing individual. A spouse maybe, a a mom, a sister, a brother, maybe a teacher a close friend or a colleague somewhere in their life. That was definitely true in the case of Nobel Prize winner John Nash, um, a mathematical genius who battled paranoid schizophrenia, schizophrenia throughout his life and professional career. And in 2001 there was an award-winning movie that was put together based very roughly, very loosely, I don't think it was entirely factual, but if you go by the movie, what I'm saying holds true very much. Um, the movie was titled A Beautiful Mind, and uh, Russell Crowe was the, was the lead actor there. But the movie is, in many ways, if you saw it, um, agonizing to watch, absolutely agonizing at parts um, to watch as you realize that so much of what this man thought was reality were just hallucinations. Um, 
and the toll that those hallucinations took on the people that were close to him was profound. In the end, at the, his Nobel Prize ceremony in Stockholm, uh, again, this is in the movie. Uh, I don't know how much this accords with reality, but going by the movie here, Nash says this. Thank you. I've always believed in numbers. Remember, he's a mathematical genius here. Came up with all these equations in economics or whatever. He said he's always believed in numbers and the equations and logics that lead to reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me through the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, and back. And I've made the most important discovery of my career. The most important discovery of my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logic or reasons can be found. I'm only here tonight because of you. And he looks at his wife. Alicia. You are the reason I am. <clears throat> you are all my reasons, he says. Thank you. And then, you know, applause and whatever. But in the beginning of the movie, Nash is an arrogant, punk, genius type guy who's wanting to outdo everyone and prove himself um, better than others. But by the end of the movie, after being humbled greatly by his illness and the harm that he exacted on so many in his life around him, he finally sees his wife and realizes that apart from her love and commitment to him, he would have amounted to little or nothing. Finally, at the end of the movie, Nash appears to be sane in his right mind and happy. And in that moment, he says it was because of someone else. After his amazing accomplishments, after finally learning to control his illness, again, in the movie, he says, I'd be nothing without Alicia. Again, while this is maybe not completely based in fact, it does illustrate a point, this movie does, this, this portrayal here, that our passage, I hope today, is also going to make for us. That being second, that acknowledging that there are others who are at least as important or maybe more important than yourself, that that's a better place to live than seeking to be first. That despite the lies, because they are lies, that the world around us is screaming at us every day, we are better off when we make life about others. That life is better when we look away from ourselves and don't just get lost staring in the mirror all the time. Hmm. That's what Alicia did in this movie. She did the very hard thing and said, you know what, for your sake, I'll be second. I'll marry someone with this tremendous illness and I'll put up with it over and on and on. And this is the way of Advent. This is the Christian way. In the Christian life, that is what we are all called to do every moment of every day, is to be second. Because that's what the Lord Jesus did. And in the words of the famous hymn, um, And Can It Be, a couple of weeks ago I referenced one of Charles Wesley's hymns. I'm going to do it again today. It's just, some of these are just so rich in this time of year. Um, 
to bring them out. There's just so much here for us. But in the words of the famous hymn by Wesley, And Can It Be, it starts out, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain. For me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And he goes on. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite is grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Jesus put himself, as it were, second for us. Jesus emptied himself of all of his prerogatives as God and he became a man. And he suffered with us and for us. We too are called to live this way. Called to live not mainly for ourselves but for others. One way that Jesus speaks of this in the Bible is to call us the salt of the earth. Jesus says in in Matthew 5.13, he says that explicitly. We are the salt of the earth. And one thing about salt, when it's properly applied, is that you don't notice it. Or you just notice it a little. It doesn't dominate. It just enhances. The salt isn't crying out, here I am, here I am, here I am. Taste me, look at me. The salt is there and you just barely notice it, right? It always takes second place to the food. Life is supposed to be an appetizer, so to speak, uh, for the great feast or the main course that's coming. Later on, when we will all feast upon God in, in glory, the salt should not dominate any part of the meal because the meal is about God and not about us. Remarkably, even the Lord Jesus himself demonstrates this, does he not? The Lord Jesus, for our sakes, chooses second place. Last place, really. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is profound, is it not? That the Son of God came to serve us. Life is better when we look away from ourselves. Jesus showed us that clearly. This also is the life of John the Baptist, who is highlighted in our passage today. It's all about John, really. John's sole purpose was to prepare the way for somebody else. Interestingly, Megan and I were, were wandering around in Hanover a couple of months ago. We went into a bookstore where they sell a lot of Dartmouth apparel. And I stumbled across some mugs and other stuff, and I didn't know this about Dartmouth. Of course, again, new to the area. But they had a Latin phrase, I guess it's their school motto, that's, and I'm not uh, educated in Latin, so I don't know if I pronounce it right, but it's Vox Clamantis in Deserto. And I know a little bit of Spanish, and those are closely related, so I could tell what it meant. And I recognized immediately this was referring to Isaiah 40, chapter 3, which is quoted a few verses earlier right here in chapter 3 of Luke. Now, before our passage today, um, I think it's, I don't know if it's verse, it's verses like maybe 4 through 7, that section there. These verses are referring to who? John the Baptist, right? A voice, vokes, of one crying, clamantus, in the wilderness, deserto. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. 
Right there, Dartmouth slogan. Uh, I was pretty amazed by that. But John was that voice. He was the one who was called to prepare the way for the Lord. Have you ever thought about what that would be like? That'd be hard, would it not? To live in the shadow of someone else all the time. Of the coming Messiah. It's not easy living in someone's shadow. It's not easy to live your life for someone else. Something that maybe in our world today would be considered one of the greatest acts of treason, right? To sort of abandon yourself and not worry about yourself and to think for others. But that is exactly what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. You see here in our passage today in verse 7, John calls the crowds that are coming to him a brood of vipers. You see there in the passage. This was a phrase that Jesus used of the Pharisees. And in verse 8, John says, Do not begin to say for yourselves that we have Abraham for our father. Abraham's our, our father. Where have we heard that before? Well, Jesus also said that to the Pharisees on a number of occasions in the scriptures. John 8 is one that comes to mind. So maybe these crowds here that John is addressing are filled with Pharisees and scribes or religious leaders. We're not entirely sure he doesn't say, but you might draw that conclusion because he uses some of the same uh, phraseology as Jesus does. So it seems likely that's the case. For many of the things that are here seem to be things that Jesus was pointing out as well with the Pharisees. But what was the crime of the Pharisees? Why would Jesus and John call these people a brood of vipers? That's, a, that's some strong language, isn't it? You'd be pretty upset if someone called you that. <laughs> you know? It's strong language. Self. Self. That was the crime. The crime of being maybe more about self. They managed somehow to turn their faith and their traditions and the teachings of Judaism into a means of self-justification. In other words, their religion grew inward. It became about me and my faithfulness and my goodness and my work for God and my tithing and my Sabbath obedience and my prayers and my synagogue attendance and my connection to Abraham, my genealogy, my heritage, and not about God. It wasn't about God anymore for the Pharisees. The salt had been dumped over the meat and vegetables to the point where you couldn't even see the food anymore, let alone taste it. But what was God's response in our passage today, which is really sharp, um, in verses 8 and 9? What was God's response to uh, the Pharisees' error of making this more about them than about God? Read verses 8 and 9 with me. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, it says. And do not begin to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's scary. So what was God's response? God did not accept their works. Right? And he preached a warning of judgment that might be coming for them if they don't repent and change. But it's hard enough just to hear that your works are not accepted, is it not? Can you imagine a lifetime of laboring over something only to be told it's unacceptable? But God says, you didn't follow the blueprint. You did not follow the recipe 
Imagine that you're having a wedding for maybe a daughter or a son, and you tell the caterer, Okay, I want a three-tiered cake with chocolate in, with a chocolate inside and a yellow cream cheese frosting, and I want it to have a beach theme. So put some sandals on top and maybe a couple little buckets and shovels and stuff. And later on, you meet with the caterer. You know, maybe your daughter or son really is into the beach or whatever. Later on, you meet with the caterer to sample some of what they've prepared for your wedding, and they've made a two-tiered cake with vanilla insides and purple icing, and it has a dog thing. <laughs> Would you accept it? No. You definitely wouldn't pay for it, right? The caterer stands there and says, what do you think? This is great, isn't it? And your response is, it's not what you were instructed. It's not what I want. It's not what my daughter wants. It's not what my son wants. It doesn't match the theme of our wedding. It's not who we are. We don't care about dogs. I'm not saying dogs are bad. <laughs> they retort, but I spent 30 hours on this cake, and I've invested all this money and resources and time and energy into it. And you say, but it's not what I ordered. It's not what I wanted. After all that labor and effort, even though the cake might be beautiful, it might taste great, it's not right. God is playing with us today in this text. Only the trees with the right fruit will be spared. If you plant what you want to plant, irregardless of your instructions, irregardless of what God commands and God desires of us, and you do what you want, and you think what you want to think, and you just live how you want to live, the axe will be put to the tree of your life, and in the end it will be thrown out. That's the warning that God gave to the Pharisees, and that's the warning he gives to us. Thank God he's warning us, right? He doesn't just do it. There's a warning in mercy. I would tell my son, you're about to run out in front of the traffic, son. Stop. That's mercy. That's grace. So just like the caterer's cake, I'm, say, I'm, I'm not going, maybe I'll go to another caterer, right? That would be a response. I would say, no, this, you're not following my instructions. I'm going to take it to give my business elsewhere. That's really what's ha happening here. If you get into all the theology of this, which I didn't, I'm, I'm not going to do, really what's happening here is, is there's, a, there's a plan to go to the Gentiles. And Jesus is done, at least for now. God is done for now with the Jewish church, with Israel being the main focus, and he was going to go to the Gentiles. And that's a part of There's all this tree reference and olive branches and all this stuff in Scripture, which is really profound. And I'm not going to get into all that. But the bottom line is, you're not following God anymore. You're just doing what you want to do and the change is coming. So John the Baptist shows us here a better way this morning. John shows us the right way and it's the way of Advent. What is the way of Advent we ask? Okay. Well it's the way we've already been saying up to this point. It's the, it's the way of being second, of putting others first, not making this about yourself. When Christ came to earth and was born of a woman, just in that act alone he was humbling himself. Have you ever thought about that? Let alone the cross, which we celebrate and rejoice in, and which was a tremendous, unbelievable moment of suffering. Just the act of Jesus leaving his throne and coming to earth was a great act of humiliation. Can you imagine one of our modern-day politicians going and living in the slums? Really? Stepping out of the White House saying, I don't want none of that. I'm going to go live in the alleyways with the homeless and with the prostitutes, and that's who I'm going to associate with. It'd be unheard of today. Wouldn't be very safe, probably, either. But Christ came to earth, born of a woman, humbled himself. So just in that, 
He was showing us, I'm going to put others first. So to embrace the way of Jesus is to put others first. It's to do what John the Baptist does in verses 15. So look with me if you have your Bible over there. In verses 15 and following. The people were waiting expectantly. And they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all. I baptize you with water. But one of you is more powerful, than, that is, who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing, excuse me, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John says, in essence, this. There's a lot that you could say about that little passage there. About those few verses. But in essence he's saying, it's not about me. He's got people thinking, is he the one here? And he's saying, it's not about me. It's about this coming one, this Jesus. I'm preparing the way for him. The one who comes with his winnowing fork. The one who will separate the grain from the chaff. The sheep from the goats. The godly from the ungodly. John points to Jesus. Do you know how hard it would be to do this? And again, put yourself in John's shoes. This is remarkable. It's not easy to do something, to have a powerful ministry like John, and to just say, it's not about me. It's about someone else. That is extremely difficult. John's ministry was so powerful that people thought he was possibly the Messiah. Can you imagine someone coming up to you and saying something like this? Are you this kingly figure who's going to liberate Israel Deliver us from our enemies, establish righteousness and peace, and reign on the throne of David. Whoa. Can you imagine with being confused with such a person? Well, there's a scene in the movie National Treasure where, and I can't remember if it's the first one or second one, I get all this movies mixed up. Um, there's a man named Riley Poole. So if you haven't seen the movie, don't panic. It's all right. I think you'll be able to follow me here. There's a guy named Riley Poole who's doing a book. He's, he's wrote a book and he's doing a signing. You know, authors will do this. They'll go around to bookstores and they'll, you know, have their books. They'll sell copies and sign them and whatever. It's kind of a promotional thing, I guess. Well, he's discovered a famous treasure called the Templar's Treasure along with this other guy named Benjamin Gates. Um, it's, it's supposedly the treasure of all treasures. But Ben Gates is the one who gets most of the recognition. And there's a lot of reasons for that in the, base, in the movie, if you see the movie. So Riley is, is at this book signing, and over and over people are coming up to him and, and saying, So, are, are you Ben Gates? You're, are you that Ben Gates? Oh yeah, I saw the Ben on TV. Yeah, Ben. Riley was like, well, I was there too. He goes, oh yeah, Ben. He's, so he's kind of getting tired of this, right? And finally, this one very attractive young female comes up to him and asks him if he's the Ben Gates guy. And he says, well, yes, I am. <laughs> and he kind of takes this little uh, pose. And she says, well, do you also own a red Ferrari? And he says, yes, I do. And she's like, well, it's being towed, so you need to go. I said, <laughs> it's a really good movie. Y'all should see the movie. You could, if, if you get a chance. But John was faced with this dilemma too, right? John the Baptist, in a much greater sense than, than the movie. People were wondering if he was this one that was coming, this Messiah. They were beginning to ponder, is, is John this guy? That was the power of his ministry. I mean, this was a profound, this man was doing some profound work. But unlike Riley Poole in National Treasure, John doesn't cave. And in fact, John goes... 
about as far to the extreme as you can to make it clear that he's not the one. And he says, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. John makes it clear, this guy is in a whole nother league. The way of Advent is the way of John the Baptist here. John not only testified in history to the coming of the Messiah, that he would come in the flesh, but he demonstrated in his life and in his actions that Jesus was greater and that his place was second place, was a back seat to the Lord Jesus. Well, what does this look like for me and you? What does it look like to, on a daily basis to, to, be, to, to seek to be second place and to make that clear by your life and your actions and your words? And I think the main descriptive here in our text today, it's one that Kathy illustrated very well in the children's uh, message, is found in verse 8, and it's this word, repentance. John exhorts the crowds in verse 8 to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And all those other descriptors of, of if you have two tunics, give one away. Um, all of that stuff is are fruits that keep with repentance. Um, but the main sort of overarching piece here is this repentance aspect. So there's a basic way. Um, this is a basic way when he says produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which is a really bizarre phrase. That's basically a way of saying live out repentance. Repentance is, is not just an at-home-alone-in-prayer-with-God kind of thing. It's a, it's a public, relational, everyday, out-in-the-open kind of thing, too. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, again, which Kathy pointed out very well. In verse 3 of this chapter, if you flip a few, few verses earlier, it says that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is not just random or you know, coincidence or whatever that repentance is being mentioned here. John is saying to them, maybe, that being repentant is more than just coming out here to the wilderness and getting baptized. You know, it's more than just saying the prayer or you know, whatever, asking Jesus in your heart, that kind of stuff. Being baptized. Being repentant is much more than that. It's more than a one-time acknowledgement. It's a daily life thing. I think that's the point here. So a life of repentance is a life, as I understand it, of being second. It's a life of being willing to listen. It's a life of being quick to recognize that you were wrong. Or even if you're convinced you're right, maybe you were wrong. To at least have that thought, okay, maybe give it a second, second guess there. It's a life that's default setting is a personal critique over an other's critique. You know, those sorts of people, right? That it's, it's just immediately somebody else's fault. Immediately, here's the problem. Immediately. Never offering solutions. Just pointing out all the problems with everything else. A life of repentance is a life that doesn't get wrapped up in comparisons. Repentance doesn't have to be right. It's okay to lose an argument. Or it's just willing to not get in one. A life of being willing to do what is necessary to help others thrive and grow. It's a life of patience. Right? Maybe you're in a relationship that's really difficult, whether it's a, a child or got some young children, so I know all about this, or a spouse or a friend or somebody, and there's consistent struggles in that relationship. Repentance is patient. It says, I'll wait. I'll wait on God to do His work. And I'm going to help you as best I can. 
Repentance, or a life of repentance is a life of submitting to what God wants for you over and above what you want for you. And over time, I think you'll find the more you do that, the more those two streams will come together and what you start to desire will be what God wants for you. It's a life that finds significance in the well-being of others. A life of repentance is a life that finds joy and purpose in building others up in the kingdom. It says, if my life can mean that somebody else finds their way in the kingdom of God, then it's worth it. A life that acknowledges, like Mr. Nash did, in a beautiful mind, that behind his good works was someone greater. In this case, his wife, Alicia, who didn't get any other recognition. Jesus said that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven was the least. The first shall be last, last shall be first, right? And that the one who wanted to be first, listen to this, must become the slave of all, the servant of all. You want to be first? You want to be great? Start being last. And that's my big prayer for us this Advent season as a church, is that we would get out of the way individually, as a corporate body, and all that we do, we just get out of the way. We'd say, Lord, you have the first place in all things. And that's the spirit of Advent. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you grateful and thankful um, that you were willing to walk that road for us. God, how impatient. I know I am, God, sometimes with people in my own life. People I care about the most. I'm so impatient. And God, you are just patient with me. Patient with us. Patient with this world, God. The forbearance that you show is remarkable. You're patient, God. And you wait. You work with us. You did not abandon us. But you came down. God, we thank you for that. Thank you that you were willing to put yourself second. To put, to put your needs, if you will. To, maybe not be totally the right way to, to phrase it. But to put your prerogatives and your rights as God to the side. For the sake of those who are lesser. God, we thank you. Help us, Lord Jesus, um, to be patient with one another. Help us, Lord Jesus, to, to be willing to say, you know what, I see a need there. And I'm going to go help. Instead of just complaining or pointing out whatever the problem might be. Living a life of repentance, you say, you know what, I'm going to set my needs, my wants, my desire to be to right to be right or correct or to be thought of first I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to go and fill that hole help us to live that way God as the Lord Jesus did thank you for your word thank you that it, that it instructs and that it helps and it builds us up I pray that it would do that and that you would take it now and apply it to your people's hearts we ask in Jesus name Amen